Hello, and thank you for listening to Dig Deeper with Denny and Jade. Today, our guest is Dr. Marit Newman. She's an education specialist with extensive experience in tertiary education in the Caribbean, particularly in designing, facilitating, and evaluating a range of learning experiences. And today she's going to help us dig deeper into education and learning, but in particular, distance learning. Welcome, Marit. Thank you, (laughs) Debbie. Thank you, Jade. Good to be here. (laughs) So I'm really excited about today's episode because you're also my mom. So I will be calling you mom throughout this episode. (laughs) But I'm especially excited because you really just have this wealth of knowledge that I've been lucky enough to benefit from. And Denny and I would just really like to share that with others. So to give people listening a little bit of context, can you tell us what an education specialist is and what they do and how your career path led you to this niche area? Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to start by saying I actually find it very difficult to explain what it is I do. So you're going to have to forgive me if this sounds a little um, like she really doesn't know what she's doing (laughs) or talking about. And that's because there isn't a a book, there isn't a set of guidelines that says, here is what an education specialist does. It just so happens that that's my job title. But to tell you a little bit about what I do, I probably have to start by telling you a little bit about the organization that I work for. So I work for a unique organization. It is the only organization in the world that is intergovernmental. So it is funded by all the Commonwealth governments in the world. It it, it is one of three intergovernmental organizations. So that makes it unique. But the second and most important thing that makes it unique is that its focus is entirely on open and distance education. And what I do is I have responsibility for one initiative in that organization, um, which has me working with small countries. Small countries, there are 32 small countries in the Commonwealth. Many of them are island states, um, but some of them are countries that are part of a continent. So we have countries in the Caribbean, for example, in the Pacific, they are islands. But we also have countries in Africa, island countries like Mauritius and the Seychelles, but also countries on the main continent, Botswana and Lesotho and Eswatini. So these are the 32 small countries in the Commonwealth. And the small countries are treated in a special kind of way because small countries have issues that are not the same issues that large countries have. And sometimes in education, those issues can get lost. It happens in economics too, but we're talking about education here. Those Those issues that are germane to the small countries can sometimes get sidelined and lost. And so it was decided in the early 2000s, when the dot-com revolution started, you guys are too young to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) You're so nice to remember, thank you. 
in the early 2000s. I'm so young. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was just a little dig. Um, but on, <laughs> a note, on a serious note, the um, at that time, the small countries were worried that they were just going to get completely left out and left behind. And so it was decided that this initiative called the Virtual University for Small States of the Commonwealth would be established. And the, that the home that they found for that initiative was with the organization I work for, the Commonwealth of Learning. So I guess the, it, it probably makes sense to say that the Commonwealth of Learning as an organization is really focused on promoting open and distance learning. It's it's very focused on, you would have heard of the Sustainable Development Goals, yep. SDGs. So SDG 4, um, which we're all supposed to be heading for these, you know, the whole world is supposed to be on track by 2030. I don't know what that is, Marit. Can you maybe just explain that to me? <laughs> all right. So in a very um, simple, straightforward way, sustainable development goals are a set of goals that we have globally agreed on. And they cut across everything from health to economics to the environment, Climate. education, all of, all of the sectors that you can think of. SDG 4, Sustainable Development Goal 4, speaks to issues around equity and inclusivity and quality of education. So basically, we recognize that in the world, there are gaps. Some countries have, you know, if you were to score them on, on quality and equity and inclusiveness, they would look really good. Other countries are at the other end of the spectrum. And so we're all supposed to be working towards ensuring that everybody has access to education and everybody has access to a quality education. And Carl's, Carl's role, the Commonwealth of Learning where I work, is about helping to make that happen, but with a particular focus on open and distance and technology-enabled learning. So we... That, that sounds like a huge, huge assignment. Of course it's huge. And we're a very small organisation. Mm. Well, I mean, there are... Obviously, there are... I mean, you, you take a UNESCO, for example, which you would have heard of, right? So UNESCO does this kind of work, but they also do a lot of other kinds of work. So UNESCO, you know, is not just focused on open and distance learning. They're looking at education more broadly. But we, we are about promoting open and distance learning because we believe that that is one of the ways of expanding access. So... Mommy, just to sort of understand, because there's distance learning, but you're mentioning quite a lot open and distance mm -hmm. learning. So what's the open part of, of, yeah. the, op of okay. the open and distance learning? Mm -hmm. you, what does that mean? Okay, so th there's, a, there's a link. So I'm going to start with the one that you're probably more familiar with, which is distance. So, so distance learning simply means that the learner and the tutor or the facilitator are not in the same physical space. So believe it or not, distance learning has been around for hundreds of years, you know. Correspondence courses. I don't know if you guys would ever have even know what is a correspondence course. But back in the day, people... Did we get something sent out? Exactly. They mailed out 
the, the, the material and you wrote your assignments and you mailed it back. But we think nowadays that distance education is online education. We tend to use those two terms synonymously, but actually online education is just one kind, if you like, of distance education. You can be engaged in distance education and you're not necessarily online. Right. Okay. You understand what yeah. I'm saying? You could, so, so they used to do it by the phone and stuff, didn't they? You could do it over a, you could do distance education over a phone as over a phone as well, yeah? Absolutely, you could. You can do distance education at what we call a blend. So you can actually be engaged in a classroom part of the time and doing some of it online. And then you have what we call technology enabled, which is is I can be in the classroom. So we're not actually physically separated, but I might use technology to assist you with whatever it is you're learning, or you may go to technology to assist yourself with whatever it is you're learning. So it's like there's a continuum from something like a correspondence course where you're mailing stuff back and forth to things like using the phone, as you say, to things like having synchronous sessions online. So I have to be online at a particular time because that's when the lecture is going to be or asynchronous sessions where I can go online and get to my learning and get to my resources, but it's not dependent on somebody else being there at the same so time. Marit, mm. At the moment, obviously, with what's going on, there's, there seems to be a version of online education. Where does that fit into what you're uh, um, discussing here? Is that wow. online education? <laughs> That's a good question. So what's happening at the moment is a response to an emergency to a crisis. So everybody in the world is trying to move their classrooms online. Now, there are, that is successful in some cases and not so successful in others. The truth is that it takes, it can take up to a year to prepare a course, especially at university level, for online delivery because you have to prepare the materials. It's not just a question of taking the same materials that you're using in a face-to-face situation and plonking them online for somebody to go read. That's not good quality online education. That's taking face-to-face stuff and reading it. That's not education. You're not engaged in any interaction. Learning is about interaction and engagement. Um, I can sit and read something. Sure, I can learn something, but that's not everybody's style of learning. And that's not what we call good quality online education. Sure, reading is an important part of it, but there, there have to be other kinds of ways of learning. So what is happening right now, Denny, in my opinion, in a lot of cases, it's what I call emergency education. It is a very quick response to try to get something online which is good i'm not i'm not you know dissing it i'm not saying we shouldn't do this i'm just saying we have to be cautious about it and here's why if i'm a student who has traditionally been in a face to face classroom with a teacher you now tell me within 3 weeks i must become this online student 
You tell my teacher who's never been trained for the online environment that she has to do or he has to do the same thing. That experience is not going to be easy for anybody because neither the student nor the teacher has been fully prepared. And the material has also had to go through a very quick or a rush job, if you like. My fear is that students and teachers will believe that this is what online education is. In fact, I would argue that this is emergency education. And my fear is, or my concern is, that people will then begin to associate online education with an experience that is not the best. It is not as good as it could be. Um, and that's, that's a concern because... There is a perception still in many parts of the world that any education that is delivered online is somehow second class, less than, not as good as. And so my concern is that with this COVID crisis, if we have learning experiences that are not as good as they should be, that will just cement that perception of online education as less. So, Marit, do you have, um, so at the start you said you represent a lot of the smaller nations of the Commonwealth. Mm. So do you have smaller nations of the Commonwealth that, that you feel actually do an amazing version of what online training is meant to be and maybe Absolutely. that could be a better yeah. representation? Okay. So, the, I mean, you have in, 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 in several of the countries where I work, you have universities who are delivering good quality online education. Most of them, though, are what we call dual mode universities, meaning that they have an online option, but they also have a traditional face-to-face -face option. You are going to find in many parts of the developing world that many of the universities will have the, what we call dual mode because in the developing world, you don't always have a continuous, reliable access to electricity. So that's something to think about. You need continuous, reliable, you need a source of electricity that is reliable. You have in many parts of the developing world people who are living in, in areas that are so remote that they can't possibly, A, get electricity, and B, they don't have access to the internet. And even in parts of the country where you do have access to the internet, the bandwidth will be a problem. Again, connectivity is a problem. You can't, it is very hard to have your entire university offering online education when you have electricity and bandwidth issues. Add to that, and, and Jade can, can speak to this, add to that the cost associated with data in these countries. Wow. You, pay, you pay for data in these countries and you're paying very often more than what is being paid in the more developed parts of the world and the people are poorer. When you say like data, do you mean like in terms of internet packages and stuff like that? Is that what that means? Yeah. Well, but well, also, I think it's also a point to make as well that because I have done distance learning before and 
to add to those costs, it's almost the same in a lot of cases as paying or even more costly to learn by distance than it is face-to-face. So I can see that as being another issue, you know, to the already mountain of problems. Right. And, and, in, and in some ways that defeats the purpose of online education because the idea is that it will bring the costs down. But the truth is for an institution, initially getting into online education is quite an expensive venture. It begins, the costs start to go down, obviously, as the years go by. But there is an initial cost attached to all of that, not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of having to develop the materials, to build the capacity amongst the the staff, because it's not just about the teacher, there's all the learner support, there's all the back-end stuff that has to go on. So it's quite a costly venture. um, And that cost is very often passed on to the student. So you're right, Jade, it can be very expensive. Where it begins to show benefits are with with two things I would mention. One is if I am living in, you know, the the rural, we'll take Jamaica since that's your country and you're familiar with that. If I live in rural Jamaica and I have to travel to Kingston three times a week to go to my classes in the evening after a day's work, right? That is exhausting on my body and it costs a lot of money because I have to pay for that transport. So it's time, it's money, and it's health, all right? If I don't have to take that journey, if I'm an online student and I don't have to take that journey, I have made some savings there right away. The second way, and and we have research that, that backs this up, the second way has to do with the carbon footprint, that you leave as a a traditional face-to-face student. Because online education, first of all, you're you're not traveling in the same way as a distance student. You're not going into a classroom and consuming the resources of that university. And you are, there was another point I was gonna make with respect to the, oh, the textbook issue. Online education very often will, and and you asked me about this earlier, it very often will use what we call open resources. So there is not in a, 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 the student doesn't have to buy a textbook. Now, textbooks are very, very costly. And they're hard copy and they're paper. So they have, you know, contributed to hurting our environment. So we're back to the carbon footprint. So we did a very, very interesting study um, with one of the programs that we offer through through the virtual university for small stakes of the Commonwealth. It was a business and entrepreneurship program that is being offered by a, uh, that is being offered by distance and is being offered face-to-face. And they found that the carbon footprint left by the face-to-face students doing the same course was three times that, that the online students. Wow, that's very and interesting. It was a small study, small numbers, one country. You know. So in other words, the online students were using fewer resources and not leaving a carbon footprint to the same extent as the persons who were doing it in the traditional face-to-face way. 
And I guess that that raises um, the question. When I mentioned the textbooks, I mentioned to you what we call open education resources. So open education, you had asked me about that earlier, Jade. So open education is really a philosophy. It's a mindset. And it, it goes something like this. It basically says all of the knowledge that we produce the knowledge that we share and that we build, it should be open. Everybody should have access to it. I want you to think about that a moment. If everybody in the world has access to knowledge and resources, it immediately means that we're, we're creating a sort of a level playing field. Right now, some people have easier access than others. So if I can afford the textbook, I get to buy it. Mm. I'm lucky enough to come from a family that has resources. I get to buy that textbook. So my experience of education becomes a different kind of experience from that person who does not have the resources to buy the textbook. I'm just using a textbook. So when we make the resources open, what we're doing is we're giving, we're, 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 we're taking away the costs, so to speak. We're not preventing right. people from access to knowledge because they don't have the resources. So it's a philosophy. And what, what that actually does is it means that when I use, some, so let's say a teacher in another part of the, in Mauritius has developed an amazing uh, maths problem, nice worded maths problem. What's just, why shouldn't teachers in other parts of the world benefit from that problem? What they do is they build on that problem. They tailor it. They customize it to suit their particular students. And then they share that in turn. So what you have is it's, it's about collaboration and sharing. And many institutions have bought into this. Of course, many have not. But the world is changing. Um, the textbooks publishers don't like it. And you can understand why, because this will eat into their, their market. Um, a lot of the academic journals, if you're, if you're familiar with how academic journals work, as an academic, I write my article. I submit it to the journal. I don't get paid for writing that article. They sell the journal at a cost that only those who can afford <laughs> then begin to have access to the knowledge, my research. So no, it's almost always, like a way keeping um, like wealthy people smarter than everyone else. Precisely. Almost. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head there, Denny, but take it broader, take it more global. It means that the knowledge and the research is in the countries that have in the developed world and the less developed part of the world doesn't have that access. So open education is about changing that. And it is changing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I was going to ask um, about the, how do you sort of the cost benefit? How does that work out? So, you know, someone based on what you've described, I would say, okay, but then face-to-face -face teaching may always be more valuable than 
distance learning. So how are you or what, not you personally, but what is being done to sort of change that? And is there better value in learning from face-to-face? All right. So there's many ways you could answer that. Online and distance education is not about saying we shouldn't have any more traditional face-to-face classrooms. Not at all. You have to have a mixture. You have to have options. In fact, we have something that we call blended or hybrid learning, which is exactly that. You can have a course that you can be taking a program. So you go to university and you're taking your course in architecture. Some of your courses are online. Some of your courses are face-to-face. That's fine. That's perfect. Or you might be taking a course. Some of of the units are online and some of the units are face-to-face. So you can have that, that mixture, that blend within the course or within the program. So it is not about competing. It is not about online or distance education competing with traditional face-to-face classrooms. Not at all. It is about have you you need to have choices. You need to have options. Online education will not work for the Amerindians who are living in in the hinterland in Guyana because they don't have connectivity. So, so you, you, you don't, it's not a, it's not that we're saying everybody must be online and everybody must be engaged in this. Not at all. It is about customizing and tailoring what is there and using technology. And that can be very, very sophisticated technology or very simple technology. We use, for example, I have a colleague who works with farmers in several countries across Africa. And some of those farmers are basically illiterate or semi-literate, but they have mobile phones. And on those mobile phones, they are learning through symbols, through audios, through videos, how what are good farming practices. So it doesn't have to be sophisticated technology at all. It can be, you know, as you know, mobile phones are pretty ubiquitous now. Even the poorest of people have a mobile phone. The challenge is with the cost of the data, as I was saying earlier. Where- Marit, who's who's responsible? So like there's usually always a, a government and private sector in most industries. Yeah. In terms of what you're talking about with education in particular and online education, getting to these smaller countries, is this only being driven because it's a government initiative or is there some private investment going into this kind of stuff? Okay, so we work, we are funded by the governments of the Commonwealth. So you have 52 countries in the Commonwealth and each of those 52 countries contributes each year to our organization. And what about, um, you've spoken a lot about the the tertiary education system mm-hmm. and and how open and distance learning is is being used at the tertiary level but what about at the primary level and secondary <laughs> level i mean yeah. a lot of a lot of primary school teaching and even early learning is has has been transfer transferred to distance learning mm-hmm. um is a lot of the challenges and and things that you're talking about are those being experienced at those other levels as well? So um, the reason I guess I focus very much on tertiary is because my responsibility is for post-secondary education. So it's for any institution beyond secondary. And 
where the 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 intersection with the secondary sector comes in because that's a really good question um, at call we have an initiative called open schooling which is which is I explained to you earlier what open was about so open schooling really is an initiative that helps countries to set up as part of their system opportunities for people who have dropped out of school to begin to learn. So in many parts of the world, as you can imagine, children are dropping out of school, 12, 13, 14, 15. They're not completing school. Their livelihoods are seriously impacted by that, right? So what open schooling does is it gives those students now an opportunity through technology-enabled, some sort of technology-enabled learning, through the open resources, we help ministries to set up an arm, a part, so they will have their primary schools and their secondary schools, but they also have this other stream that allows people who have dropped out to come back into the system. Um, None of my colleagues work with the primary system. We don't work with the primary system at all. Um, So that's a very interesting question (laughs) to ask there. And that doesn't mean that you can't have that. Um, I think a lot of the reason for that is that people send part of going to school in the early years is about socialization. And that socialization, you know, that is taking place. being lost, almost. Could be, yeah, will be diminished. If you, you know, move your young children into, it doesn't mean that when they go to school, they don't engage in some technology enabled learning. Of course they do, but they're not, they're not at home, completely distant, separated. It's always going to be a blend. It's always going to be face to face with some technology enabled learning because such an important part of the young child's experience at school is socialization. Yeah. And, and what about the, because there's also a social aspect I definitely found from actually going to university as well. So, I mean, if, as you said earlier, it is about having sort of a blended, you know, a bit of both, you have face-to-face for some components maybe, and then you have the distance uh, learning for, for other components. But is that also, you know, potentially or it could be lost as well, that that sort of social aspect, especially if, because I can see where smaller countries that are perhaps poorer could make, you know, huge investments into open and distance learning. But then is there a social aspect where you are, you know, making your network connections, you're deciding your career path through interaction with your, your lecturers and your peers? Could some of, or is some of that lost in your experience? Has there any been any research into that? Or so, of course, the 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 loneliness of the online learner is a is a concept that has been you know, talked about, discussed, researched, and that is why when you move to online, you have to be very very conscious and very very deliberate about setting things up in a way that that socialize that whole social aspect that you're talking about is accommodated and teachers can do that so we have a pedagogy of online learning there are tools and strategies and techniques that you can use to help 
the learner to not feel so isolated and to not feel so so lonely. Having said right, that, one thing because mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of people that aren't teachers. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you want to explain what do you want to explain what a pedagogy is? Okay, sorry. <laughs> so pedagogy just speaks to the art and science of teaching and learning. I mean, that's the that's kind of like a, a definition, I suppose. It's so, like an ethos, yeah, for a teacher. Yes, yes. It's 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 how do you design your learning experience? So I'm going into this class tonight, and at the end of the class, I want my learners to be able to, you know, decorate the top of the cake, right? So what are the activities that I'm going to take my learners through so that at the end of the evening, they can do those things? I have to break it all down. The question that Jade asked about losing out on that socialization part of it, because social, social, what, what, what we learn from one another, that you do risk losing that in an online environment. And you risk losing other kinds of things too. Somebody asked the other day, um, you know, do you want a doctor operating on you who has done all of his training online? Probably not. <laughs> I would definitely want him to have some practical experience. Exactly. Now, that yeah. doesn't mean that online can't give you that practical experience. It absolutely can, you know. It can because they have the most amazing, you know, they're, they're robotics now. They're all sorts of things. It's about context and choice and what works for some won't work for others. Some students love the distance experience. They hate sitting in a classroom with a whole lot of other people. They hate being called on. They love the anonymity of it. Um, I think I think it also depends as well, though, Mom, on the teacher as well. Oh, yeah. Like I know <laughs> because from my personal experience I mean I did my master's for three years learning by distance when the university was probably like a block from where I lived and I found it a really frustrating that they didn't offer some face-to-face component or or an option to do it Mm face-to-face and I really really struggled but in saying that and and there were you know some semesters where I did have a really, really good teacher who delivered and and made that online learning experience far more enjoyable and far more valuable than others. And whether that, whether that was because of the content or, or, you know, maybe the content wasn't suited for online learning or whether it was the teacher, I don't know. And I'm, you know, not going, not going to, not going to say anything there, but, um, I definitely think it comes down to a lot of factors. You know, it is it is about the student, it is about the content, and it is about the teacher. And also being able to have that option of, okay, yes, I think this semester I do need, you know, that face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I personally would have struggled with online training. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those people in a Zoom meeting that would turn the camera off and just go do mm-hmm. other stuff in the background. <laughs> um, so if I didn't have a teacher telling me to do work, yeah. I definitely would be off on my own thing. Yeah. So I would have been very disadvantaged if I was a high school student or any type of student going through this process, especially being a teenager. Like yeah. I know for me personally, I needed I needed someone to monitor my, my process through a classroom. So I would have fallen well behind during this period. And you're not unusual at all, Denny. I mean, 
you know, persons and the research has shown you have to have a certain amount of self-directedness. You have to be, uh, you know, committed to it. You have to know yourself as a learner uh, to succeed in the online environment. And that is why you find that many of the online courses are for what we call lifelong education. They're for people who have already gone through some amount of schooling and now have an interest in going further or in doing something further. So Passion. it works best with these kinds of people. So you've been working with higher education levels with those smaller countries from what we've seen and what's going on in the modern world, what do you see that will change from an education point of view when we start having our teachers go through uni and how can they incorporate more online education or, or do you think they will incorporate online education as part of the, the, the teaching yeah. program now? I, I think that most institutions um, are now in a, are taking the decision that it doesn't make sense to go back to what we had before because it's COVID-19 today. What will it be three years from now, five years from now? So I think you will find that many universities, not I think you will find, they. I know they are already working towards doing things differently. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to have traditional face-to-face -face classrooms. What they will have are more nimble and agile staff and systems that will allow them to move from one space to another without quite the same, you know, crisis that many of them had to face. Some, some universities didn't have a huge crisis, you know, because they're already fully online. We have what are called open universities. They're already fully online or fully distance. They may not be using online as their means of distance, but they don't have a crisis as such. Um, dual mode universities don't have as huge a crisis as universities that are single mode. They are the ones who are in, who are really struggling. And some of them, I mean, for example, I have one, one partner in one country and the vice chancellor just said, we have to just close. They have a learning management. They have a platform. They have a few programs online. But his position was, if I say we are going to move online, I am disenfranchising at least 70% of my student population because they're not going to be able to access the materials, even if they're online. So he just had to close. And he's in consultation with the ISP, the service providers, to try to get them. And this is, I guess, where your public-private partnership comes in. The question you had earlier, Denny, he's trying to get them to understand that they need to give packages to his students that will help them because they need to access their learning materials. And right now, online is... They can't. They, they can't. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, they have and that probably also poses a lot more other like, econ you know, it probably filters on into economic issues as well, because then you've got this whole part of your population that isn't learning. Um, and then, you know, you're also holding those people back. So, you know, there, there's probably a whole waterfall of issues that stem from that as well. well I, I never just like this is right from the start. 
And as what like what you were saying remind me of it. I never really thought of further education as something of the elite. And the more that you discuss it, and especially when we start talking about the smaller nations com- compared comparatively to a bigger nation, there's a huge gap in terms of that further education. And that is like I never really thought of further education as something for the elites. But even here, to go to university is very costly. Now, we can go because you can take a, a government loan to go to school. But if you're someone who's using a government loan to get through school and you're doing a big degree like a doctor degree and you're coming out with massive loans, you are still massively disadvantaged compared to someone who is wealthier, mm-hmm. whose family has probably had that uh, that elite education for many generations. Right. Um, it is still it's, – it's, it's a very much yeah. a social it's, – it's hard to overcome that uh, socioeconomic barrier. That's right. And, and, you know, going back to that study that I mentioned to you earlier, um, where we had taken a program that was being delivered online and the same program being delivered face to face. One of the findings that came out of that study that I found very, very interesting was that in amongst the online, the persons who had taken the course by distance, they were I think it was 93% of them were what we call first-generation graduates, meaning that they are the first people in their families to ever go on to higher education. So It also shows you, I guess, the power of, of distance learning as well and how it has the ability to... Breaks barriers. It breaks barriers Absolutely. and it gives people who wouldn't ordinarily have an opportunity to further their education that opportunity to do that. And it just, it, it sounds like, you know, based on what you're saying, that to set up, you know, a, a system of learning that is open and distance learning, but also has that dual function, also offers that face-to-face aspect, is something that is a huge investment for countries to make, but something that is worthwhile in the long run. Absolutely, absolutely. And and why we work with governments is there's no point in just developing one part of this. You've got to have the connectivity. You've got to have the bandwidth to go with it. What could be the top two things moving forward that would help make the biggest impact in the next 10 years, do you think? What are two wow. changes that could really help? Um, I think if the open education movement, that philosophy of sharing, collaborating, to build on knowledge, if that was adopted more widely, I think that would so enrich everybody. It would enrich everybody because it's not like all the knowledge resides in the developed world. Far from it. <laughs> the lesser developed countries have some really, really amazing talent and knowledge. They have what we call indigenous knowledge. Um, and so I believe if the open education movement was, was more broadly accepted then, I think that would be one thing that would make such a difference because then you would have everybody pooling everything. Can you imagine wow. how, how amazing sounds, that would be? very powerful, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Powerful. I mean, so, so that would be one thing. And the second thing, I mean, I suppose this is a very, um, but not selfish, but I would love, I, 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 I struggle with the dig, what we call the digital divide, what I was talking to you about a while ago. I struggle with the fact 
that the kid who needs to be online right now, you know, is not able to get online and continue with his or her lessons. While the kid who has access to online from that middle class home uh, probably do, is going to go back to school and life will, will go on. Whereas that kid who didn't have that access is, is, who is already disadvantaged, you know, who's already like one of the last piece of persons in the line, he's already disadvantaged and he's going to go back to school and he's now further behind. Further behind. And like initially, I was just always thinking of when we're going through this conversation, smaller countries, but even in our society in Australia, there's definitely families, obviously not to the numbers, but there's definitely families where they wouldn't have internet maybe or very limited access or not even a laptop to take home or a computer. But it also sounds to me like, I mean, I don't think that having a that disparity in education is something that is new. I think it's something that has existed for many, 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 many years. Um, But it just sounds like it's taking a different form. You know, it's just evolving. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, And, and it's not that it's taking, it's taking a different form. It's, it's, it's more in some ways it's more of the same, but the part that hurts me, is that this is supposed to have been what would have helped to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's my point. But maybe it is, maybe it is, but maybe it's closing very slowly and maybe open and distance learning and, and more collaboration through, um, you know, institutions such as Call is just sort of the first step yeah. in... Yeah. in making that change more mm. prominent, mm. you know. And everything that we've seen through the recent process, like a lot of the scientific institutes have actually been sharing a lot of data, which yeah. is Absolutely. in our modern times is actually quite unheard of. And, you will and it's coming back to the open source. Yeah. And you'll also notice that a lot of the for cost, for charges and for fees, courses are now being made available for free. So, you know, Google is offering many of its courses for free, Udemy, all these, you know, all of these big, you know, providers, but they're responding to a crisis. They have been morally sort of pushed to do that. My position is that that's how it should be all the time. Exactly. That's what I was just about to say. I was just about to say, this is, I mean, it is such a great thing that, you know, everyone's sharing information and Google and all these companies and universities are slashing their prices. But all that really tells me is, yes, you're being very generous, but you could have been doing this from day one and making these. And I understand that people off delivering these services have to be paid. But I also believe that if, if universities and institutions and governments work more together, then closing that gap does make it, you know, a lot more possible. It, 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 it makes it happen quicker. Um, I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much, Mum, for, for being on our podcast. And that was, that was really interesting to hear about everything that's involved. I kind of want to go to uni just to be one of the elites now. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for tuning in and stay sharp. Okay. Thank-